from Kurtco Media. You go for the cars, but you go back for the people that you meet and the great relationships and friendships and personalities. There's wonderful friendships that I've been fortunate to make over the years, as we all have. It's truly through the car world or the car culture, and sometimes in the strangest times and places. That was the voice of Tim McGrain, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome today and welcome to my guest, Tim McGrain, CEO of M1 Concourse in Pontiac, Michigan. Tim, welcome to the show. Robert, thank you. I feel like not only are you the CEO of M1 Concourse, which we're going to learn about presently, you're also an old friend and it's a real treat to be able to have a friend and ex-colleague on the program. It makes it particularly special. Tim, when I heard that you were head of M1 Concourse in Pontiac, I thought, well, this is just a perfect opportunity to get you on the program and tell our audience what's going on back in the Detroit area. Why don't we start with that? What is M1 Concourse, Tim? M1 Concourse is an 87-acre facility, an automotive motorsports facility. It's centered around a one-and-a-half-mile high-performance driving experience track. It's not a racetrack in the sense that it was never designed for competition racing, but it was a track that was created so that the private members community, the private garage condos that surround about a third of the track that those owners who become motorsports club members can go out and enjoy, exercise, whatever cars they have. And we have members with a real cross-section of automobiles. We sit right on Woodward Avenue, which is designated M1, Michigan Highway number one. So that's where the name M1 Concourse came from. I wondered about that. Okay. Being a California guy, I've only been back to that nucleus of American automobiles a few times, so eager to learn more. We're actually the gateway project to the city of Pontiac, which is about 20 miles outside of downtown Detroit area. Woodward Avenue heads off in sort of a northeast direction, goes through about 11 different cities. When it gets to Pontiac, and obviously Pontiac is a a significant both history in itself and automotive history, there's what's called the loop, which you can take to sort of, you know, basically circle around Pontiac and come back around. So the property was actually actually has got a significant automotive history dating back to, I think about the early 1900s, 1903, when the Rapid Motor Car Company actually first started building vehicles there. They were sort of trucks or eight or 10 passenger vehicles. It's mostly known for being a GMC production plant, mostly for their commercial vehicles. The infamous or the very iconic six-wheel GMC motorhomes were also produced on this particular property. So there's a lot of automotive history in the terroir, as you being a wine person would call. It opened in 2000. 2016, again, about 250 private garage condos. We have the one and a half mile track. We have a brand new event center, which is getting ready to be complete and open in October. Another exciting stuff coming in the future. I went on the website and had a chance to take a fantasy walk through some of those condos. And man alive, what a dream garage those different floor plans are. You can get anything from a little 600 square foot cozy little shack to something close to 2,500 square feet that really becomes a home away from home for a guy or gal with some serious car interests. That's exactly it. They are sort of across the boards, both size-wise and then how they've been decked out in the inside. I mean, some of them are working workshops. Car guys have got a couple of ramps in there and they're working on their cars. And then you get to the other extreme where you've got the ultimate Taj Mahal facility 
quality with marble and glass and chrome and spectacular lighting and everything in between. And the only noise you hear is the bartender saying shaken or stirred. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Seems like an amazing place to spend some time both for leisure and for some more serious honing of track skills. As a private club, it must be an amazing place. But it sounds like, Tim, you're also having some public activities there. First of all, to set the stage, being from Southern California, we like to think sometimes here that we're the center of the automotive universe. But as you so rightly mentioned, it seems that there was a little thing called car manufacturing that actually started in Detroit and the environs around there. So there is a heritage of automotive enthusiasm that I mean, goes back to the turn of the last century. LA is a newcomer compared to that. You've, you have automotive events and concours and cruises that go back a long, long way. And I guess the most famous is called the Woodward Dream Cruise. That's correct. The car culture, obviously based around automotive manufacturing in the Detroit and greater Detroit area, goes back decades. But the car culture from sort of, I would say, contemporary times, but certainly when you take Woodward Avenue and the legacy and the legendary car culture around a street like that in a town like Detroit, Detroit. It's interesting. Next week, we've got a press conference for our Woodward Dream Show, which happens the same weekend as the Woodward Dream Cruise. And we've got two cars that are historical, a part of that Woodward Avenue legacy. One's known as the Silver Bullet or the King of Woodward, the 67 GTX. That a very good friend of mine has been very gracious to bring out. Not a car you're ever going to see on the road anymore. And the other one's called the Black Ghost. It was a legendary 71 Challenger. There's a lot of sort of car folklore and vibe around that. But there's a tremendous amount of car culture now. Just the energy around the passion of the car. If you take some of the more high-profile institutions, you know, like the Henry Ford, which have that wonderful Driven to Win exhibit going on now. And obviously the events that come to the Detroit area, sort of all the car manufacturers that are here, and just everything around the automotive industry and the passion for cars. Now that the weather started to change here, there are multiple shows, cruises, drives in and gatherings not only every weekend, but almost every evening or every day. Everybody's so glad to be able to get out in warmer weather. And of course, we're all just happy to be getting out, period, after a year of lockdown. What a great escape and what a great way to sort of usher in what might almost pass for normalcy. This will be my first Woodward Dream Cruise. As you well know, for a better part of three decades, I've always been on the Monterey Peninsula in August with the different things I've done around Monterey and Pebble Beach events. I'm certainly very familiar with what the cruise is all about. It's going to be great to see it in person and experience and obviously at M1 Concourse, we've got an activity that's based around it. I want to segue and just kind of talk about how long it is you and I have known one another. We met way back in the early 2000s after Rob Report was acquired by Bill Curtis and I was there doing some creative direction. And as I recall, the company needed kind of a maestro to orchestrate all the automotive events. And how we got lucky enough to have you come on board is still a mystery, but you did. And we had a great opportunity to build a friendship and work together for quite a few years there. Of course, before that, you were working in the auction venue, heading up Barrett-Jackson, and following Rob Report, you went to work with a really important car collection up north. You've done work with Pebble Beach, with the Ferrari Club of America, and of course, we were most recently CEO of WeatherTech Laguna Seco. That's a hell of a resume. Well, thank you. I've been extremely fortunate to have some wonderful experiences. I first moved to Southern California in the early 80s in 1982 after visiting in 1981 and lived in Palm Springs 
things and got involved with the Chamber of Commerce. And there was a group of us that were on one of the committees that were passionate about cars and in trying to come up with a way to bring tourism into the desert around that Thanksgiving period of time, we all looked at it and said, well, there had been car races in Palm Springs in the 50s. Why don't we put on a vintage car race and those infamous last words? How difficult can it be? Anyway, fast forward, we put together what was in the mid-80s, a very rudimentary rectangular track with two chicanes on city streets. And everybody showed up. It was one of those ones, I suppose. Monterey Historics was obviously very prominent. There was the Chicago Historics put on by a chap called Joe Marchetti up in Elkhart Lake. But I think just the attraction of cars racing in Palm Springs, Dan Gurney came down and raced one of his Eagle F1 cars. Phil Hill was running in a pre-war Talbot Largo. Sterling Moss was racing. Gala Tinner and Carol Shelby showed up unannounced. And it was just one of those, talk about beginner's luck. But we knew immediately that for this to continue, it need more than a volunteer committee for the Chamber of Commerce to take it somewhere. So we engaged with Chris Pook, the original founder and promoter at the time of the Long Beach Grand Prix. And Chris did the Long Beach Grand Prix. And at those particular days, there was an IMSA race at the Del Mar Fairgrounds in San Diego. So Chris came in as the promoter and brought in Rick Hall Auctions. He and Rick Hall had been a long association. And obviously, that was a business decision to bring revenue to the event. And that's how I got introduced to Rick. Back in those days, he would do an event in Palm Springs. And the following weekend, one of his two events down in Newport, Beach, classic car auction. We went down to Newport for the weekend. 30 days after that, I ended up starting to work for Rick Cole. And that's what got me into the classic car auction world. In towards the late 80s, that particular marketplace for sports and race cars was taking off like a rocket. Rick was starting what was the original auction in Monterey, which was a single night auction on a Friday night for only 85 cars. In 88, the 250p Ferrari sold. It was only about a month or two months after Enzo had passed away. And, and I think it hit close to $3 million dollars, which was the time was probably the third or fourth highest selling car on record at public auction. So it put a lot of awareness to the Monterey auction with the next year we went two nights and then see where we are now. So that got me into the business, reconnected with Don Williams at a Black Hawk collection. They'd had a long association and I ended up going up to Danville with Rick to become associated with the Black Hawk collection for most of the 90s, 93 through 2000, which was really fortunate. Then, then I got approached by a group of three organizations. It was the Barrett Jackson, it was Hemmings Motor News back in the day when you had to get the first class edition of Hemmings because you needed it to show up two days before anybody else. That was the Bible, man. It was like a phone book. And Speed Vision, which was sort of the original motorsports television organization. And those three groups had got together and I got approached by them and I ended up. Bennington, Vermont was not on my list of places for the McGrain family to call home. And I'd already lived in Southern California. I was working in Southern California and still living in Palm Springs. So we went to Arizona and that's how I ended up working for Craig for a while. And through Don Williams and Don has a long association with Tom Barrett and Russ Jackson and was probably the person that was responsible for putting the Barretts and the Jacksons together to form what has been long known as Barrett Jackson Auction Company. So I was with Craig for a few years until I got the call from the Rob Report organization. And we're looking for somebody to put on events, to create an event division, to bring the pages of our magazine to life. And I couldn't think of anybody at the time. And I think they said, well, no, actually, we want to talk to you. So a trip over to Malibu to spend some time with Bill. That's how you and I ended up becoming colleagues. 
colleagues. And there were some wonderful times. I mean, bringing the pages of Rob Report magazine to life with all the different wonderful categories and then all the other publications. At the time, they owned Showboats International, so we would do big yacht events in wherever yachts go, South Florida, south of France. And then they had the Rob Report motorcycle magazine, so we would have the two-wheel world. Very much about cars and all those good things and the luxury lifestyle that those fortunate people could enjoy. Tim, you've been to more Concord events than anybody I know. I have to laugh, you surprised me recently, a couple of years ago, when I heard the voice of the MC of the Hillsborough Concourse announcing that a car of mine had won Best in Show. And I said, oh my gosh, that's Tim. So talk about coincidence. You really do get around, man. All types of car shows or car events. First of all, that underlying passion and sort of a lifelong passion for all things cars, as a lot of us do. But I think it's a case you go for the cars, but you go back for the people that you meet and the great relationships and friendships and personalities that the car world attracts. I think that's part of the special meaning of the car world. And maybe other passions do. I'm not a golfer, and I'm not a fisherman, but I know in the car world, the people and the personalities. And also, I've been very, very fortunate that my time at Blackhawk Museum, the second time when I was back there, we had people that would come to our speaker series, invited guests. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm introducing a legendary driver. And I, when I was a kid, I was sitting at the fence watching that person on the start and finish line of a Formula One race. So to sort of spend time now, and in some cases, call them friends or acquaintances, some of my childhood heroes from the most racing world has certainly been a special opportunity for me. Your experience in California and Arizona obviously got you darn deep into the car world. But as you mentioned, jumping ship and relocating to the car capital of America must have been a, a little bit of a shock to the system. I don't see you wearing a mink coat right now, but your blood might be a little thinner than most Detroiters. Now that it's warming up, maybe you have a few months to acclimate. But in terms of the climate, not just the temperature, how would you say the Motor City car community is like Southern California or Northern California or completely different from them? Have you noticed some different trends and different interests in that regard? I've only been here two months. So, you know, from a a climate point of view or weather point of view, whether in Northern or Southern California, there is no sort of winter months. You're basically, you got the opportunity to take your cars out nearly 12 months of the year. And also when we lived in Arizona, this is the time that you take your car out because you're certainly not taking it out in June and July when it's 115 degrees. So I think when the summer months come here, it's going to be great to see. There's certainly American marks predominate here, muscle cars, hot rods, but there's no shortage of European, contemporary European sports cars, but not the historic ones. What you would see in Southern California from a point of view of Ferraris and Astons and Maseratis on the road or frequented shows, I haven't seen them here. There are some here, but I don't think there's anywhere near the quantity that gravitated to what would either be Arizona or Southern California that you see out. That being said, we'll see in the summer months. It's going to be interesting to see what the culture is, but it's certainly the quantity of people with their cars. I mean, last Tuesday, well, I was told it was a small gathering at a diner nearby, and there must have been a better part of 800 cars there. If this is small on a Tuesday <laughs> evening, what's going to happen in the middle of the summer? You mentioned the King of Woodward. Now, what, a 67 GTX, Plymouth GTX? That's about as rare and esoteric as a muscle car from that era gets. What a thing to see. I don't think I've seen a GTX in ages. This is a legendary. The gentleman has had it, has had it a long time. And he sorted out, and it was close to what would one describe as a barn find. And Harold Sullivan is the gentleman that owns it, and, and Harold's had a passion for rare and high-performance mopars for many 
years, but it was basically the king of Woodward. It couldn't be beat. I've heard different stories about the dream cruise and what happens. I know at the moment, if you drive up Woodward Avenue and you top at about 55 mile an hour and a 50 mile an hour limit going through Bloomfield Hills, the local constabulary will pull you over, as they do quite frequently. But I suspect that one week in August, I think it's probably everybody just looks the other way. So everybody gets a dispensation up to a limit of sanity. Is that right? Oh, there are probably so many cars. Maybe the most you can do is about 30 or 40 mile an hour. I've heard it could take you four hours to do what would be a 45 minute drive on a regular day. Gosh, it sounds like Monterey Car Week, doesn't it? (laughs) There we go. (laughs) You can walk faster than you can drive and you better have a nice thick radiator in that Jaguar E-Type or you're going to wish you'd never taken it out of the garage. Talking about Monterey, it's going to be really hard. Believe me, I have looked at flight schedules and getting to Monterey, there's no direct way. But if for some reason I'm not able to make it to the Pebble Beach Concord and the Monterey Peninsula this August, it's going to be the first time since the late 80s. And I better be really busy and really distracted because I'm going to go through withdrawals. That is a very special gathering. I've had a long association with Pebble Beach Concours, and that's a magical time. And every year you think, okay, there can't be any cars out there that we haven't seen. And every year something special, not something, a number of great cars, unusual cars to show up. That's one of those magical moments. I suppose we were very fortunate to be in that part of the world to have such a spectacular event. And now I'm in Michigan and we're going to look at what we have here that's spectacular in its own way. And certainly I think all things Woodward, the Dream Cruise and this new Dream Show event that we're putting on, we're going to carve out our own little identity. And not just carve it out, but you're actually the master sculptor because you get to invent these things and see what transpires and what kind of excitement ensues. I know that your Woodward Dream Show in August is not the only thing that you're doing. You've got something else plan for later on in the year called the American Speed Festival. Tell us about that. This is a new event. It is because we're not a competition racetrack and we can't put on a historic race. So what we're doing is we're going to put on what I suppose is best described as time trials where cars sort of go out one at a time and either perform against the clock or do demonstration runs. If we were a hill, it would be called a hill climb, but we're not. We have a circular track and we've got the better part of a 30-foot elevation change. But we do have an intriguing track and the theme of the event is past, present, future of the automobile. So we're going to have, of the six classes of cars, we're going to have cars that will represent the historic eras, whether it's Indy cars, Can-Am, which is our feature mark this year, or endurance cars. But they're also going to look forward to sort of contemporary cars. And because we have the manufacturers here, the big three or however one we want to describe it now, but also some of the smaller bespoke cars showcase what the future is all about. And they're going to be on these time trials. So there's going to be two days of speed trials on our one and a half mile track. What it will allow, I think, from the historic and the vintage car point of view is because some of these cars are of a historical nature, they're rare, and the values are getting to a point where the less and less of them are on the track in competition. They don't want to rub shoulders with anybody anymore. Uh, that's it. You know, when I was at Laguna Seca and, and we do the Rolex Monterey Motorsports reunion, the biggest challenge was to not lose great cars because there was a concern by the owners that are the other people. I mean, the organization, when we put the events together, not only vetted the cars, but you sort of vetted the drivers because you don't want anybody to get hurt. But just as importantly, you don't want a historically important 
car to get damaged in any way. That was always a challenge. And if you look at the cars that were raced 10, 20 years ago, most of those now, high percentage of those now, will not go on the track in competition. But what it has done, it's made these events, and most of them in Europe at the moment, where cars can be demonstrated one at a time, whether at full blast or more from a performance run. So that's why I think American Speed Fest was going to carve out its identity as the sort of a, a unique event in that respect. Sort of a lifestyle event with an automotive theme based around past, present, and future of the automobile. It also lets spectators have an opportunity to really see and hear the car in a singular fashion. I mean, let's face it, there's nothing more exciting than a bunch of old smokers lining up together and going around the track, but this way you get to hear the exhaust note of every car individually, and you get really to, you're able to focus on exactly what it's doing. And as you say, the good news is that it'll actually get out and drive, because otherwise they're priceless treasures that probably just won't see competition again. As someone who spent some time in the museum world, we're very fortunate when I was executive director of the Black Hawk Museum to have some truly legendary cars on display. And some of them we were able to take out on a frequent basis. Some of them, they never left the galleries. To your point, to see some of these cars, especially performance cars, to see the run makes all the difference. I remember we did an exhibit while I was there and we were fortunate to have the La Saba, the legendary 1953 concept car. Oh, that big, beautiful blue thing. Yeah. That's exactly it. Just, you know, one of my favorite. And when it came off the transporter, we drove it, we took some video of it around the museum and then we drove it into the gallery and we had some video and we posted it on the website and the number of people that fed back and said I've seen that car forever I've never seen it run because you've already ever seen just stills of it but to that point I was a few weeks ago I was very lucky to be able to drive one of the new Ferrari SF90s. We pulled out it in, I'm going to just call it electric mode. That's their hybrid supercar. And boy, in electric mode, it's as silent as a stealth bomber. Called me a dinosaur, but there is just something wrong with a quiet Ferrari. <laughs> that's, that's just not right. It lasted about three miles and I went to, I said, no, nah, I'm sorry. We, we, we got to change this up. Tim, I feel the same way. First time I drove a 918 Spider, I thought, what's wrong with this picture? It sounds like me wheeling a lawnmower out from the shed. Yet all you hear are the brake rotors and tires and there's not a thing to be heard behind you. The bark of an engine is something certainly that old fossils like me like to hear. Now that being said the performance is mind-blowing from hybrid variations so they've got this qualifying mode. Yeah that'll get your eyes rolling back in your head. We're going to take a short break but we'll be right back. On Medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Tim McGray. In terms of some of the generational shift, as obviously as younger people come into what I'm going to call the culture or the hobby or the community, how is that being reflected in the cars you're seeing? I mean, what do you think you're going to see at these events this year? Is it going to be a whole new decade of cars or are people still kind of gravitating to some of the old good old stuff that we liked years ago? I think it'll be a combination of some of the cars that are out there now that the younger generation, I wouldn't say first driving, the technology that they 
were able to do with either electrical induced performance or nitrous and everything with what is basically a four-cylinder engine. That's their modern-day version of how we sort of saw the hot rod world. They're changing it up. It's also good to see some of the younger people have a passion for maybe some of the cars from the 70s and the 80s that you never thought anybody was going to like or it would have a second life. And now all of a sudden they're coming back around. Yeah, are you ever going to see a Pinto under its own power again? Well, guess what? I bet you see a few of them on Woodward, huh? I was at Ken Ligenfelter's collection a couple of weeks ago. That's a nice spread, isn't it? And he's got a, it's the Levi interior edition, well, the Wrangler edition or the Levi edition of a Pinto or one of those cars. I mean, for probably about a 20 or 30 year period, you wouldn't have given that a second look. And now all of a sudden. And now all of a sudden it's a priceless relic. That's funny. I think AMC did something with a Pucci interior from Italian patterns, trying to get all exotic and some amazing things. Of course, I'm still waiting for the Lincoln Mark 4s and 5s to come back, get myself a Bill Bloss edition or maybe a Gucci edition. Or There's some good stuff. Talk about marketing. It was kitsch then, but it's fantastic now. I'll be right with you when those Lincolns. I actually had one as a driver for about an eight or nine month period. It makes no sense when you're trying to park the thing. Or when you're trying to fill up the gas every other day. But man, when it comes to comfort and let's just be honest, Tim, anybody make AC like Ford or GM? No, air conditioning. That's what they do so well. So talking about the Lincolns, it was a few months ago, but and it'd been a long time since I've been out there, but the Gilmore Museum out in Kalamazoo where the CCCA have their museum, they've got a wonderful facility out there and it's got a series of individual Mark museum buildings. So Lincoln have a museum out there and they've got you know nearly one of all those great Lincolns that we just mentioned. It's probably been 20 years since I've been out at Gilmore when I was at Blackhawk the first time around and we would always take cars to participate in their annual CCCA experience. So when I went out there, I believe it was last October when I was visiting here in Michigan, it truly has expanded and they're building two more museums out there. But it's great to see what the car manufacturers are doing with their heritage point of view of trying to showcase the brands. In that particular case, I know there's a Lincoln exhibit out there and there's a Cadillac museum out there. I'd love to take a detour and go down that particular cul-de-sac, or I hope it's not a cul-de-sac. I hope it actually leads to a new direction. What's going on with pre-war cars and the full classics? Where do you see an organization like the Classic Car Club of America? Where are they going? Are they going to be able to keep the audience and keep the enthusiasm and the drive and the values of these cars going into the future? That's not an easy question to answer. They're very, we'll say set in their ways, but they've got a very rigid structure as to their cutoff years, which is different from the antique automobile club that changes and they could accommodate later model cars. When you talk about full classics and custom body or custom coachwork cars, I think they will hold their own because there's sort of the spectacular cars, but you only have to go to a few of the auctions, whether the ones in Scottsdale's or ones in Pebble Beach or in Emilia Island. And there was a time where you couldn't see across the room because all the cars were, the roof lines were six foot or taller. And now you'll be lucky if you find one in each corner because everything is waist high or less. So there certainly has been a generational shift in the appeal for cars, which is a shame. But you also, you can get a classic for, you get a lot of car for the money, but then you've got to get the people that aren't, not so much understand them, but enjoy them and appreciate them. And I think that is changing a little bit and, and hopefully it doesn't change too much, but there's still some phenomenal collections out there and it'll be interesting to see two weeks time, Amelia comes around. It was the last big event that everybody was at before the shutdown. Then the door slam shut on us all, didn't it? For a year and yeah, a half. So we hope 
hope that Bill and his team have a successful opening event. So those types of events, I think, will always have that buzz. If it's a factory-bodied Lincoln or Packard, I suppose, saying this with all appreciation, homely looking at best, they're going to be tough. But when you've got sort of a stunning coach boat designs, but then if you look at over in Europe, specifically England, you know, an event like the London to Brighton Rally that caters to cars that can't be any older than 1904, they're getting increased attendance. I mean, the value of a car that 1904 and it qualifies for London to Brighton versus the identical car that's a 1905 and later is multiples. You're right. They are attracting audiences now. They're, they're this, as popular as ever. They go and watch an old trilobite go down the road at 30 miles an hour. The average age of the participants is increasing. That's good. I mean, you see pictures or videos or I know people and that's being passed down generation. It's nothing better than to see somebody in their 20s or 30s driving a, a car from the early 20th century. That's wonderful. Maybe there's some hope yet. I like that idea. And you're right, especially in the Detroit area with the big OEMs putting resources into supporting their historic legacy and museums and collections being preserved is a very positive indicator. You talk about museums. I know I've promoted it a few times. I think one of the best museums in, on the planet has got to be the Henry Ford and Greenfield Village right next door. I mean, Detroit is really a, almost a destination that any car lover should absolutely put on their bucket list. Whether or not you're a fan of big American iron or not, you've got to see it. You've just got to see it. The Henry Ford, I mean, you can get lost for, I won't say days in there, but certainly you need more than a day. And that's before you even think about going through Greenfield Village. In fact, last year when we were sort of in shutdown and Cindy and I were in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time, where it was bouncing between 110 and 115 degrees. And, and we just decided, you know, let, let's do a series of museum trips. And we, we'd jump on a flight to go to different museums. And there was a direct flight from Phoenix, Detroit. So we went there. We spent the day at the Henry Ford. We were fortunate that the New exhibit obviously hadn't been complete as a museum was closed, or they certainly hadn't done that exhibit. But to see all the diversity that they have there, the aviation, the trains, all the technology, but the cars and this current exhibit, you know, which they've spent many years preparing, and it's got probably two of my favorite cars. The Jim Clark winning Indy 500 Lotus is, is right up there, along with the Crown Jewels and then the, the Gurney you know, Mark IV GT40. GT40, you've got old 999, if you want a Bugatti Type 41 Royale, we got one of those too. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Let's talk about Tim for a minute. Share a little of your background before you started working. What got you into cars, Tim? It must have been a, a very early age. When I was five, my parents gave me an Austin J40 pedal car for my birthday. That was not an inexpensive present for a five-year-old. So I must have been passionate about cars because if I was passionate about soccer, I would. I, and I've got pictures of me sitting there with my school blazer and my tie and my cap on looking all very serious. Knowing me, I probably slept the first couple of nights in the car. 
where, where that early passion came from, I don't know, but it certainly started at a very early age. Then, you know, my father was in the used car business. He had a used car dealership and that was his business. It wasn't his passion. It was a business. He was a, had formerly been a professional soccer player at the time when you needed a job to pay the bills. But so he was passionate about soccer and he liked playing golf. But I spent all the time at his garages. I'm hanging around cars. And then I don't know what age, but certainly a, a lot younger than I should have been. I could parallel park three point turn and get a car parked into a narrow space you know, long before anybody was able to think about me driving. So it's always been around cars. And then we grew up in Kent and southeast of England. I was within earshot of Grand Hatch Racetrack, which was one of the two major racetracks that hosted the Grand Prix every other year. They went between Silverstone and Brands Hatch. There would be the sports car races out there along with you know lots of others. So probably nearly every weekend was spent on our bikes going out to Brands, whether we were watching motorcycles or whatever it was. And admittedly, probably a few misguided school days, if the truth be known. Best education you could have had. It was just there. I probably was really enjoying myself. I just look back and go, I only I really knew what I was, was looking at. There's a book out that, written by John Horseman, who was one of the great golf team people, along with the great John Wyatt and it's called Racing in the Rain. That's right. And it's a great story to read, but I will tell you, his accounts of that rainy race at Brands Hatch when one of the Rodriguez brothers had that legendary drive, it didn't feel quite that good when I was standing cold and wet outside the chain-link <laughs> fence at that time. Yeah, so the passion was there. It just all things motorized. So I suppose I've been fortunate that, you know, I've had a career that's touched that world in a number of different forms for, for a long time. I'm hugely envious. I wouldn't even know where to start imagining how different life would have been if I'd had an opportunity to see and experience some of those wonderful things, especially in the UK where cars had quite a history going for them. So you grew up with some great drivers, great cars. Yeah, and motorsports is a top sport. I mean, over here, it's obviously baseball, basketball, and football. And in England, it's soccer over there, cricket to a certain extent, but motorsports, I mean, when it's Grand Prix weekend, not just the car people know who's on the pole or who's the contender, but most of my friends' mums would all know. I mean, it was front page news. It wasn't designed to the, the sports pages. So it was just part of the car culture. And that Austin J40, the, the pictures that whether my parents took it or my grandparents, it was my grandmother's house in, in Gravesend, but whether we, whoever took the picture, I, I'm thankful they did. But for many years, I was always trying to find one, just a sort of a you know, old time sake. And you'd either be at Hershey and, and you'd find something think there was sort of some rusted shell that had had the pedal boxes taken out because it'd been put on a merry-go-round. Or it was the other extreme where it had been fully restored and it was priced off the charts. And then Goodwood Revival started doing their pedal car race down the street during the event with Austin J40s. And because that drove the appeal for these cars through the roof. You know, when you're a collector and, and you've got a 250 GTO or, or a GT40 or whatever it may be, buying a pedal car for your, your son or your grandson and spending a ridiculous amount of money is, is pocket change. It's a rounding error, yeah. But that being said, it was one time at Pebble Beach at one of the cocktail receptions. And I think, you know, you Gordon Abkin's no longer with us, but Cindy and I were talking with Gordon at his reception and he had a pretty extensive automobilia collection that he was sort of starting to look to pare down. And he stepped away from the table and, and Cindy goes, do you think Gordon's got a J40? And I said, well, no, he won't have a J40. Most people in England have J40s. Well, I was wrong, but I didn't find out till later 
later. So Cindy apparently asked him and said, do you have an Austin J40? Well, he had two of them. He had a restored one, but he also had an unrestored one. And it was close to the light blue that I had. So she ended up buying it from him and he had to deliver to the Black Hawk Museum. So that was uh, my birthday present one year. And it's a great throwback. I suspect it probably cost as much as my first three full-size cars, but that's all right. <laughs> well, Tim, I can tell that's one car you're never going to get rid of. That's a keeper for the McGrain collection, isn't it? It's referred to as Tim 5. My dad had a license plate made up and the license plate was, was Tim numeral 5. So it's affectionately referred to as Tim 5. Oh, what a great story. See, that kind of gets back to your saying that it's really about the people and not just the cars. It is. There's wonderful personalities and friendships that I've been fortunate to make over the years, as we all have. It's truly through the car world or the car culture and sometimes in the strangest times and places. So you got your little pedal car, the J40, but if you had the keys to a few, uh, say uh, three sets of keys, what, what do you think they'd be? Oh my gosh. Robert, that's torture. I ask every one of the guests, so I got to know, especially from you, because you've driven them all. It's not the three you choose. It's the 300 that you, you have to leave off the list. From a younger age, I, I've always thought the Royales were the greatest and the grandest of classic cars. I think it would it would be one of the Royales, and specifically probably either the Coupe Napoleon or the Coupe de Ville. I think that that's just about as the ultimate sort of statement of elegance in an automotive capacity as you, you can have. Literally the Mona Lisa. I mean, they're not only the rarest and the most iconic, but they speak to a, an era and a level of uh, excellence that's just never been surpassed. And now you, you go through that, oh, should it be the Jim Clark Lotus? You know, should it be a Golf GT40? <laughs> uh, you know, it should be the Rolls-Royce AX201 Ghost. I'm going to probably say, I would think the Golf GT40, the two-time winning. Again, uh, as a kid in the 60s, that time in the 60s, I was still in boarding school. There's probably... As iconic as it can be, that blue and orange Golf GT40 that won Le Mans twice, that would have to be there. I've had a long passion for stuff in, in the world of, of land speed record cars and that whole era that George Easton, Malcolm and Donald Campbell, John Cobb, there was an exhibit at Bewley a few years ago and it was simply titled, you know, for Britain and for the hell of it. And that was how the era was about. That's right. I mean, things shouldn't have gone that fast back then, but they did. It was amazing. I mean, these were really incredible achievements, not just of machine, but of the guys that drove them. Yeah, and, and you look where they drove them. I, I was down at Daytona at the end of the year and stopped by the Daytona Museum, uh, as I do when I go there, and they do have one of the Bluebirds there, and, and you look at the specs on the weight of the car, and they've got one of the old tires or one of the wheels with the tires where it got shredded, and then you go out to Warman Beach, and you look where they ran, and you just have to shake your head and go, better person than I am. So, But from that point of view, the third one, that's on every list I ever have. It's commonly referred to as the 1959, but it's actually a 1957 car that won the 1959 Le Mans 24 hour, the Aston Martin DBR1. That is automotive sculpture of ever there is one in a stationary capacity. And then to see it move and then for Salvadorian Shelby to drive it to win. And Aston Martin and Bentley have sort of been a couple of marks that when you grow up in England and especially when you're in boarding school and your releases through car magazines or car comics or whatever, th those would be the three. But boy, there's about 300 that I like to squeeze in there as well. Those choices are pretty spot on and unimpeachable. Any of those would be uh, the linchpin of any collection. What a thing.
Well, I look forward to coming back there and seeing what's going on at the M1 concourse and checking out some of the car community back in Pontiac, Michigan. I'm really wishing you all the best. The welcome ad is open at any time. We've got an exciting year ahead of us and it's a building process for these events in the future. And I think we're going to develop at least you know one or two more other feature events for, for M1. And Tell our audience how they would learn more about M1 concourse and about these events. A website we can go to? The M1 concourse, which is M, the numeral one, and then N concourse. And it is the aviation terminal spelling of concourse as opposed to the car show spelling. So it's C-O-N-C-O-U-R-S-E.com, M1concourse.com. And then in each of our feature events, which would is the AmericanSpeedFestival.com and WoodwoodDreamShow.com. Tim, we'll miss you in Monterey, but I think you're going to have as much fun or more kickstarting this great event under your oversight. Robert, thank you very much. Thanks to Tim McGrain, CEO of M1 Concourse, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.